Hello and welcome to Uptempo Sports 24-7 with your host, Coach P. I thought this song was quite appropriate for our first topic today, and that is superstar James Harden. That's where we've heard James Harden has been in the club in Atlanta, celebrating a birthday with little baby, and also hanging out in the clubs in Las Vegas. Training camp has started. James Harden's trying to tell the Houston organization that he wants to be out of Houston and traded somewhere else. So we're going to start this podcast right here, right now, with James Harden, superstar of the Houston Rockets. Let's get it started. So James Harden said that I'm going to take my talents to the club. Started out in Atlanta with little baby. And then supposedly he finished up in Las Vegas. Now he's in Houston. Sports is the only occupation that I know that you can get paid sums of money. And don't show up for work. James Harden is making 40 over 40 million dollars, 41 million dollars, if I'm not mistaken, this season. But he'd rather be at the club because he's trying to force himself to be traded from the Houston Rockets, his current employer. His current employer, actually, for the next two years, because he's got two years remaining on his contract. Remember, Houston wanted to give him an extension to stay. James Harden said, no, I'm good. He can turn down 200 over $200 million. He told him, no, nah, I'm good. Just get me out of here. I, I'm not understanding. I, I'm, I'm not quite understanding how players and their agents believe that you not showing up for work is going to get you what you ultimately want, which is to be traded. If I'm another team, how does that look? Now, I know this has been going on for, in sports forever, so I'm not naive to that. But I've always wondered on the other side, if you're the other organization thinking about or contemplating possibly pulling off a trade for a player who obviously has told his current employer that he wants out, you as a potential new employer What's your viewpoint in getting this player? If he becomes upset with your organization or is is unhappy, will he pull this same stunt with you? We know that James Harden has said that he wants to be out of Houston. He doesn't believe that they can ultimately win a championship. And as they sit right now, currently, he's probably correct because the Lakers, the current NBA champions, strengthen their hand in the offseason the Clippers and we're going to talk about them a little bit later in a move that they made that I'm scratching my head about should be formidable in the West as well and then you still have the likes of Denver and Utah and Portland and I don't know if Houston is better than any of those other teams I just named so I get why James Harden would want to try to put himself in a situation 
where he could potentially compete for a championship. I'm just wondering if this is the best method to go about it. You, in a sense, you hurt your trade value because teams know that you want out and they see how bad you want out. And so now Houston can't ask for the entire house when they put you on the market. They can't get market value for you because everybody in the league knows you want to be traded. So that's why I've never understood why players act in this manner, because the team is trying to move you per your request, whether it be you go to them and ask them or you do what James Harden is doing and just don't show up for work. You're a disgruntled employee. How do you think that's going to look on the open market with teams that potentially may want you? How's that going to feel back for Houston trying to get pieces for you? Because they're not going to just give you away. They're just not going to just give you away for pennies on a dollar. They have to try to get some type of value for what you have because they're going to have to start over and they know they're going to have to start over. They can't start over from scratch and not have any building blocks in place. I don't know if 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 Houston at this particular point can make a deal that's going to salvage getting rid of James Harden. So that's the other thing that's, that you're, that Houston, I'm sure, is looking at now, too. We know that James Harden has opened up his now his catalog of teams that he says he will go to play for. Initially, it was Brooklyn, Brooklyn and Brooklyn. <laughs> then he said, oh, OK, I'll give Philly an opportunity. Now he's opened up his catalog and he said, oh, by the way, add Milwaukee to that list. Add the Miami Heat to that list. And I'm saying to myself, these teams that he's added to his list, what can they offer in exchange? Milwaukee, they have nothing. They gave away three first-round draft picks for Drew Holiday in that trade. They don't have any other players on that roster other than the reigning MVP and the player that they consider to be their franchise player in Giannis. You know they're not trading Giannis for James Harden. They're not trading Drew Holiday because Houston wouldn't want Drew Holiday. They don't have any other pieces to trade. They don't even have any collateral in draft picks to trade. So I don't know how James Harden thinks he could get to I don't know how James Harden thinks he can get from Houston to Milwaukee. Number one. Number two, I don't see James Harden fitting into the culture of the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler epitomizes what Miami is all about. I don't see how they work that in. They just signed Bam to a long-term contract. I know that Bam is a centerpiece just like Jimmy to the future of that organization. I don't see Pat Riley pulling the trigger on sending Bam to Houston. But if I'm Houston, I'm asking for Bam. I'm asking for Bam, I'm asking for Tyler Hero, and I'm asking for at least a future draft pick. I can see them moving Tyler Hero. I can't see them moving Bam Ibio when they just signed him, and he's still young at, I believe, 24, 25. I'm not moving him for James Harden, not at this stage of James Harden's career. Not saying that James Harden has nothing left, but I'm just not moving that piece, that chess piece on my board. I'm not moving for James Harden. So to me, 
it comes back down to Brooklyn or Philly. Now, Maury, who used to be the GM in Houston, I don't know how he thinks that he could pull off a trade for James Harden without getting rid of Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. Because if I'm Houston, I'm not selling for less than one of those players. And if I'm Houston, I'm asking for Ben Simmons. Plain and simple. You have Ben Simmons, you can run him with John Wall now, use him in a pick and roll. But then some people say, well, is that an odd fit? Because Ben wants the ball in his hands. He's been a point forward since he's been with Philly. And John Wall, we know, is nothing but a point guard. I don't know if you want Joel Embiid. You just signed Boogie Cousins, and I'm not saying that Joel Embiid is not better than Boogie, but what I'm saying is, is that you got two big men. How does that serve you in this NBA climate when you're looking for stretch four, stretch fives, and wing players? You trading and trying to get Joel Embiid now that you signed Boogie Cousins, even though it's for a year, I don't think that dynamic works at all. So the we come back to Brooklyn. And now I'm hearing I'm hearing that Houston has put out there that for Harden they want KD or Kyrie. Okay, let's 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 think about this for a second. If you are the Brooklyn Nets and the GM for the Houston Rockets calls you, yes, um, yeah, we're we're we want to make this trade. James wants to come there. Um, we're willing to make this trade, but we're going to need you to uh, trade Cap. We're going to need you to trade uh, Kyrie or Kevin Durant. We preferably would want Kevin Durant. I could hear complete silence, crickets on the other end of the phone if I'm the GM of Brooklyn, and then I'm hanging the phone up because you just insulted me. You know, excuse my French, you know damn well that Kevin Durant is not going to be a part of any trade for James Harden that's just not even feasible so why would Houston even put that out in the atmosphere I have no idea but they are definitely smoking something that is illegal now the Kyrie aspect of that that's pretty intriguing and I talked about that before I mentioned before that I could possibly see if KD signed off on it that you bring in James Harden and you trade Kyrie. Now, you couldn't just trade Kyrie. You would have to trade another piece. So you'd have to figure out, do you trade Kyrie and do you trade Careless LeVert? Or do you trade Kyrie and you trade Spencer Dinwiddie. If I'm Houston, I'm asking for Kyrie and one of those players I just mentioned. More than likely, since Kyrie is a point guard, although I know that I have John Wall there, but if you have John Wall, you can play Kyrie off the ball and basically run Kyrie as a two. And then you bring in Carolus Levert. And Carlos Levert would be your small forward. He can be a three. He's 6'6", if I'm not mistaken. 6'6", yeah, I think he's 6'6". So you could do that in a trade and also, excuse me, a potential first-round pick. But 
to mention Kevin Durant out your mouth just goes to show the ignorance that's going all around between what James Harden is doing and then it's trickled down to the organization that you think that Brooklyn would answer the phone if you mentioned that you wanted Kevin Durant for James Harden in a trade. That's just not going to happen. But I can see possibly you thinking about maybe if you're Brooklyn moving Kyrie for James Harden. The only thing is, is that how would that work in Houston with John Wall and Kyrie? Kyrie's a ball dominant guard and John Wall's definitely a point guard. He can't run the two at all. But you could always play Kyrie off the ball because John Wall, your backcourt, John Wall is a bigger guard in your backcourt. So defensively, you would not be in a situation where you're just depleted defensively or at a disadvantage because you have a small you have a small guard in Kyrie because you have John Wall at 6'4 in the backcourt with him. And then, like I said, you could have Carolus LeVert, who showed you last year in the bubble and even before then, that he can be a prolific scorer. So that gives you a young player who can score the basketball, gives you Kyrie, who you know is a bona fide scorer, and who can shoot, to go along with John Wall, who we don't know how well he's going to be coming back. The only problem is, again, you have two players that need the ball in their hand, Kyrie more than John, and you do have a history of injuries with both of these players. John Wall coming off, coming off of an Achilles injury where he's been out for almost two years, and Kyrie having off-season surgery last year for that shoulder, and he's had knee issues. That's the only red flag. But if I'm Brooklyn and I really want James Harden, and if Kevin Durant behind closed doors is speaking to management and he indicates he really wants James Harden, then that may be a trade that you may want to consider. I don't know where else you would want to make that move for James Harden, for him to be able to be with a contender. That list is very short, considering what you would have to give up because you're talking about breaking up an entire squad to get James Harden. And if you're Houston, you have to say to yourself, I don't care what you what you're losing out on that end, this is what we're asking for, and this is the only way we're going to release James Harden in a trade. So I think James has maybe backed himself up into slight into slightly a corner. And if I'm Houston, I'm not going to feel pressured to make a move unless I get what I consider to be value for a player of his caliber. Let's move away from the Houston saga. And let's talk about this deal that just went down today with Paul George that I'm still scratching my head and shaking my head about. So Paul George, you know, he signed a two-year deal when he was traded to the L.A. Clippers last season, the second year being an option year. And the Clippers gave up a king's ransom to OKC to get Paul George to play alongside Kawhi Leonard. How'd that, how'd that work out? Oh, that's right. They got bounced in the Western Conference playoffs by the Denver Nuggets. Oh, that's right. Paul George didn't show up in the playoffs when they were up three games to one on Denver. One game they needed to eliminate the Nuggets 
Paul George didn't show up in games five, six, and seven. Definitely game six and seven. That's right, Paul George wants to be a superstar. He wants superstar treatment, but he doesn't play like a superstar. He has not played like a superstar in the playoffs. Not just talking about this past bubble experience. I'm talking about going back to OKC. But you just signed Paul George. You just gave him a four-year extension at $190 million. And because he has a fifth-year option, that can be boosted up to $226 million for a guy who disappears when you need him the most, and that is in the playoffs. Again, sports is the only occupation that I know that guys can get paid an enormous amount of money for not producing at the level that they're being paid for. It's unbelievable. And maybe I'm a little jealous. But that just makes no sense to me. If I'm the Clippers, I'm going to wait it out a year. I'm going to, I'm going to let him play out this year and see where we finish up and see how he finishes up in the playoffs. If he is that guy and proves to be that guy and we fall a little short as a team, I have no problem giving Paul George an extension. But there's no way in hell that he gets a four-year extension now coming off the season that he did in the playoffs. It's no way. And you still have to sign because Kawhi did the same kind of contract. So you still have to re-sign Kawhi. Now, that, I understand re-signing Kawhi. We know what he can do. We've seen him put a team on his back and carry him to the promised land with Toronto. We know that he is a superstar. There's no question about it. Low management or not, Kawhi Leonard is a superstar. He is a top five player, if not top three player in the NBA, hands down. So we know what he can do. But to extend Paul George at this state of where he is coming off the season that he came off, I don't know how Mr. Balmer could do that. I know he's a gazillionaire, but if you just like giving money to giving money away, um, let me give you my direct deposit information so that you can direct deposit me a nice, nice chunk of change for doing nothing. Because that's exactly what you got from Paul George in the playoffs last year. You got nothing. And it always amazes me how these players want to always point the finger of blame at somebody else when they fall short. Paul George wants to say that Doc Rivers didn't put him in the right positions in the playoffs. Last time I checked, Doc Rivers was the head coach of the L.A. Clippers last season. He has now been removed and he is now the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. But Doc left behind one of his trusted assistants in Ty Lue. Oh, that's right. Ty Lue was now the head coach of the Clippers. But Ty Lue was on the staff with Doc Rivers in the bubble when they lost to the Denver Nuggets three games to one. So tell me how this works. You say that Doc Rivers didn't put you in the proper position for you to be successful in the playoffs. But Ty Lue was there as, as his lead assistant coach. So why couldn't you go to Ty Lue or why couldn't you go to another one of the assistants and express how you felt so that they could utilize you to the best of your ability to help them 
further in the playoffs? That's what my question is. You want to you want to point a finger at Doc Rivers after Doc walks out the door and says and you say now Doc Rivers didn't do a good enough job because he didn't put you where you needed to be so that you could be effective. But his lead assistant now takes over as the head coach of the Clippers. My question to you, Paul George, is why didn't you exert your frustration with Ty Lue or Sam Cassell? and let them know where you were in regards to how you felt about where you were being played at and the opportunities that you felt like you weren't getting offensively to help the Clippers advance further in the playoffs. But now that Ty Lue is the head guy, I guess you think that that's going to magically, he's going to wave a wand and and your game is going to elevate now because you're going to be more willing to play for Ty Lue because Doc Rivers is not there and Ty Lue is going to put you in the best position. That's what I'm hearing from you. That is some BS. Players that are superstars, they're going to elevate their game. They're not going to blame the coach. Do you see LeBron blaming anybody? Do you see LeBron blaming the coach? LeBron plays his game. I'm not saying LeBron's always perfect, but LeBron is that guy. Regardless of what Kyrie said about him being clutch, LeBron is clutch. LeBron is the best player still on the planet, hands down. I know KD's coming back. KD, in my book, is second. Kawhi is third. LeBron, until he retires, or until his game starts to slip to the point where I'm saying, yeah, you know what, father time is taking over. Until then, LeBron is that guy. And so for Paul George to sit and say, that all of a sudden now he's going to be the guy because Doc Rivers is gone. And I guess he thinks Ty Lue is going to create this offense for him to be where he needs to be on the floor. In my estimation, is just a guy who does not want to take a look in the mirror and say to himself, I could have done more. I could have been better. It was just as much my fault as it was my team's fault for not advancing in the Western Conference. That's what he should have been saying. Not you trying to throw Doc Rivers underneath the bus. And I'm not saying that Doc is exempt from anything. I've already talked about Doc Rivers and and, and how the organization failed, not just Doc, but the whole organization. You can't put this all on Doc. You put that on his assistants, Ty Lue, Sam Cassell, the rest of his assistants, and the team, his players. Everybody had a hand in the demise of why they did not advance in the Western Conference. Lou Williams, him outside the bubble, hanging out at a strip club. Montrez Hurl, when he came back in, not being focused, probably thinking more about a, a contract than he was what was going on in the bubble. You can't have that. Patrick Beverly getting a little nicked up but not being what they need completely in a point guard. All these were factors in the reason why they did not advance. Not just Doc Rivers not putting Paul George in the right position offensively. If you're a guy who can score a bucket, you're going to score a bucket. As Carmelo. Carmelo Anthony came into Portland. He wasn't the first option. He wasn't the second option. Some nights he wasn't even the third option. But when his number was called, Carmelo, score, score. That's what scores do. Legitimate scores and guys who have been superstars they know what to do. Carmelo has been a superstar in this league. He never forgot how to score the ball. His game may have may have 
trickled down some because he's gotten older. But as you can see in the playoffs, Carmelo can still score the basketball on a given night when given the opportunity. He's not saying that they didn't put him in the right place. He didn't say Coach Terry Stotts put him in the wrong place. He just went out there and did what scores do, what guys who are really stars do. He went out there and found a way to help his team. That's what Paul George should have been doing. Whether his offensive game was at its peak, that's why you have to be a two-way player. You're supposed to be considered one of the best two-way players in the league. Then do what you do on the other end, which is play defense. Find a way to stop Jamal Murray. That's what you should have been doing. Find a way on a double team to help shut down the Joker. That's what you should be doing. If your offensive game is not where it needs to be, then create your offense by being a good defensive player. Defense can turn into offense. But no, you much rather play the blame game and you much rather have your teammates at odds with you because you want to be on the same level with Kawhi Leonard and get all these perks as being a superstar on your team. Good luck with that $190 million, Mr. Bomber, because I think that you just made a bad investment. I don't see Paul George ascending upward. I think he's leveled off to the player that he's going to be. I don't see him getting to another level. He'll never get to I don't he's a star player in the league for sure. He's got all the ability to be one of the better players in the league, to be considered a superstar. He just doesn't have the heart. And he is not going to get to that point. So I hope that this $190 million goes a long way for Paul George because I don't see him being that guy. And if the Clippers are going to get over the hump and beat the Lakers, they're going to need Kawhi Leonard to be enough of a player to support not only his game, but to bring along Paul George because Paul George is not going to be able to do it as a single player by himself. That's for sure. Let's move away from the NBA for a second, and let's talk about what's going on in college basketball. We started this season, and we talked about the issues that were going to be facing college basketball as a result of dealing with this global pandemic. We had already seen it with not only the professional athletes with basketball and baseball and football right now, but we saw it with we've been seeing it with college football and them trying to maneuver around games being canceled because teams have had to shut down their facilities basketball just started right before thanksgiving games have been missed and now you having criticism of the idea that they're trying to push forward with these games from one of the greatest college coaches ever Coach K from Duke, he has some pessimism in regards to this season going forward. Now, I I, I see out on Twitter and I, I see through social media that you have people making comments because Coach K is saying that he thinks that it needs to be reviewed in regards to the continuation of basketball games because of the health and safety of the college athlete. And you're, you're hearing coaches and fans saying, is Coach K 
balking at continuing the season because maybe he realizes that his Duke team is not as good as he may have thought coming in because they've dropped their last two games. Two non-conference games. He lost to two Big Ten teams, Michigan State and Illinois. Both of these two teams are in your top ten. Illinois came to Cameron Indoor and beat Coach K by 15 in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. That was the worst loss in the the illustrious career of Coach K, which which spans 40 years at home. In Cameron Indoor Stadium, Cameron Indoor. He's never gotten beat by that many points by a non-conference team since he's been at Duke. Did that rub him the wrong way? I'm sure it did. He's a competitor. And, and for people who don't think that coaches are competitive, then they wouldn't they shouldn't be coaches. Coaches are very competitive. Sometimes I think coaches can be as as competitive as their players, and sometimes even more. I'm guilty of that. As a basketball coach. But at the end of the day, if he is being sincere, which I think his points are valid, but I think at this particular point, I think we've already seen this movie and these commissioners and these athletic directors are going to push forward. They're not going to stop unless you have a situation where you have a complete outbreak of multiple, more, more than one team at a time. They're going to, they're going to push forward with this. This is the whole idea of why they started this. They're not going to sway from this. And and that's what Coach K is going to have to understand, is that at the end of the day, I, I do believe that he has some concerns, and I do believe that he said this because there's validity with it. But there may be also, and he's human, just like the rest of us, Maybe he does see that his team is not as strong as he thought it may be. And that could be the other reason why he is declining going forward. I don't know. I have not talked to Coach K. I'm not in his mind. But I could see why people would think that he has selfish reasons for saying this. I could see that. And I can also see Coach K's opinion about this as well. Because what he said is valid. It's no question about it. We have to do our due diligence in regards to making sure that these um, athletes are safe. But at the end of the day, when the season started and all these conferences decided that they were going to go forward and play, they had to have a plan in place for just this reason because they knew that there would be stoppages and games would have to be made up because of the effects of COVID. So before we are ready to before we are all ready to blast Coach K and say that it's all based off selfish reasons why he wants the season to be stopped right now, I think we all have to take a look at this in the bigger picture and understand that at the end of the day, it is about the, the health and safety of these student athletes. And if there's some way that you can maneuver and maybe postpone some of these games until maybe the first of the year to see how things go with the um, vaccine now 
being put out, vaccine now hitting the market, and now they're trying to now implement that here within the next few weeks or so, that is something to think about. But at the end of the day, these athletic directors and these commissioners of these conferences, they need to come together and and come to a resolution about what's going to be best in order for these seasons to go on, for this season to go on as safely as it possibly can. That is a bigger picture. We're going to step away and take a small commercial break, and then we're going to come back and talk about week 13 in the NFL, and then we're going to also tell you who we think will win tonight on the Thursday night game. We have the Los Angeles Rams hosting the New England Patriots in a big game for both teams. We thank you for tuning in to Uptempo Sports 24-7. We're always here for your listening pleasure. We'll be right back. All right, all right. Welcome back to Uptempo Sports 24-7 with your host, Coach P. I'm going to give you a rundown of what the results were in Week 13. Remember, games got pushed back. Games got added to certain nights because of COVID protocol, teams not having enough players. And so we're going to give you a rundown of what happened in Week 13 and then give you a startup into Week 14 with tonight's game with the New England Patriots going to the Los Angeles Rams. So week 13, I've been saying this, folks, for the last couple of weeks, that the NFL keeps trying to throw this shade over our eyes, this veil, that what we're seeing is not what we're really seeing, that it's parity in this league, and it's not as much parity as they want us to keep believing. And I say that because... You had two teams this week that went on the road. And not only did they win, they won impressively, even though the games were close. And we're going to start off talking about the New York Giants going up to the Emerald City against the Seattle Seahawks. Seattle, with everything intact, Chris Carson back, Carlos Hyde back in the backfield. That monster, DK Metcalf on the outside. Tyler Lockett. Of course, Russell Wilson. Going up against a Giants team that was lacking Daniel Jones, their starting quarterback. Colt McCoy being inserted. Remember, Colt came in last week from the Bengals game because Daniel Jones had pulled his hamstring against the Bengals in that game last week, and Colt took over. So he was a starter for this game. The Giants have now won five of their, 11, five of their last seven games. I, I hear you. And I'm not trying to discredit the Giants at all because they've been playing well. Of all the teams in the NFC East, or I should say the NFC least, the Giants to beat the Giants to me, excuse me, folks, the Giants to me have been the most impressive, especially for the fact that they have not had all of their weapons on offense, and their key weapon is, of course, Saquon Barkley. Their defense has been actually better than 
I would have anticipated. I kind of knew that the Washington football team's defense was going to be, at least their front their front line, their front four, was going to be impressive with the addition of the number two pick, Chase Young, going, going um, along with Montez Sweat and Ryan Kerrigan. I knew that that was going to be a defense that was going to be a problem to deal with. I didn't see this from the Giants defense. But the Giants held Seattle to 12 points at home. The Giants. Come on, folks. Come on. Come on, NFL. Work, work with me. You're, you're still trying to get me to believe that these teams can turn it on and turn it off from week to week. You're, you're trying to tell me now that the Giants defense is the reincarnation of their defense when they had those Super Bowl runs. Their defense has been playing well. Leonard Williams has actually played well. But come on. It's Seattle. In Seattle, regardless of the fans, they're still in Seattle against Russell Wilson. You hold Russell to 12 points. Come on. As Randy Moss <clears throat> would say, you know, basically, you're, you're telling me that the Giants, you got that the Giants mossed Seattle. And as Chris Berman would say, come on, man. I'm, I'm just not buying into this. I'm not buying into this rhetoric that teams can get up one week and then they're down. I'm, I'm not buying that. It's, it's just these are professional athletes. These are grown men. Again, I can see I can see if you're coaching kids how it would sway maybe from week to week, how it would be up and down. I don't see that. And you're not going to convince me that it's that way. It's that easy for you to get up or to be to play down against an opponent from week to week. I'm just not buying that stock at all i'm not buying that stock and then so you had the giants to get that game now they sit on top of the nfc east and then you had the washington football team traveling to pittsburgh i know pittsburgh was coming off of a tough conference game against the baltimore ravens last week i know pittsburgh um had a short week i know washington was Riding high after destroying Dallas on Thanksgiving. They were down 14 0 in this game to Pittsburgh. 14 0. It should have been 21 0. Pittsburgh had the ball at the goal line, four tries from the one yard line, couldn't score. I get it. Washington's defense is impressive, their front line is impressive. Pittsburgh can't run the damn ball. And they don't stick with the run long enough. You have been at 36 years old dropping back 40 to 50 times throwing the ball. That is not a formula for success long term. That is not the formula for the Steelers if they have any aspirations of getting to a Super Bowl. They have to have more balance. They cannot have been dropping back in that capacity and be successful. It's just not a winning formula. On top of that, on top of that, they had opportunities in this game and their receivers constantly dropped footballs. Constantly. Erg Ebron dropped at least three or four passes. The receivers, Juju, dropped two or three passes. They they just they they just did not look like they were ready to play. And that's really 
not the M.O. for a Mike Tomlin coach team. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just not believing. You're at home. You, I know you're undefeated. And, and honestly, I didn't expect Pittsburgh to be undefeated at this particular point, nor did I expect them to go through the season undefeated. But you're talking about a Washington team offensively that's challenged. They don't have a, a bunch of weapons on that Washington football team. Antonio Gibson, the young running back they drafted from Memphis, got hurt early in this game. They have one, in my opinion, one legitimate threat at wide receiver, and that is Terry McLaurin. Terry McLaurin, I'm sorry for the mispronunciation. Terry McLaurin is their number one threat offensively at the receiver spot. That's it. Now, I know that Bud Dupree, the outstanding defensive end for Pittsburgh, got injured in this game. He will be out for the remainder of the season, unfortunately, for the Steelers with a torn ACL. But you still can't convince me that Washington had enough offense and their defense just stopped the Steelers from scoring in the second half. Pittsburgh put up three points in the second half. That's it. And you're telling me that the Washington football team, they were down 14-3 at the half. So they scored 20. They outscored Pittsburgh in the second half 20-3. Let's, let's get that right, folks. They outscored the Pittsburgh Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger and those weapons. They Even without a running game, the Washington football team outscored Pittsburgh 20-3 in the second half. And you want to tell me about parity and balance in the NFL and this is supposed to be one of those games I'm I'm not buying that stock I'm sorry I'm not buying that stock at all so Washington is tied in the NFC East with the Giants but the Giants have the tiebreaker because they swept Washington you have Buffalo at San Francisco after the impressive way San Francisco looked a week ago against the Rams defensively and even offensively with the way they ran the ball I thought Although they weren't technically at home in San Francisco, they were in Arizona because of the county laws in the Bay Area. They had to leave San Francisco and had to play their next few home games in Arizona. Still, Buffalo had to travel west. And Buffalo coming off of a uh, win last week, you thought that they... um may have a letdown into this game in San Francisco, the way they were so physical. Well, they started out physical in this game. Mr. Mostert was averaging about seven yards a carry. And just like in the Pittsburgh game, San Francisco got down to the the goal line and couldn't punch it in on four tries. What I don't understand about this season is everybody on fourth down wanting to go for it. I'm trying to figure out when the metrics changed that said that on fourth down, if I've been stopped three consecutive plays, that on fourth down, my chances of scoring a touchdown now become higher because now I'm going to come up with a play that I didn't design on the first three tries that's going to work on the fourth try. I'm trying to figure out when that came about because all these teams are getting more and more aggressive about going forward on fourth down. And, and, and their end result is the same as it was on the first three downs. They're not scoring. So I don't understand why teams are just leaving points on the field. 
They won't kick field goals anymore. It's like touchdown or bust. If we don't score a touchdown, then we don't need the three points. I'm not understanding. I'm just not understanding at all. But Buffalo looked impressive in this game. Josh Allen looked like a young Ben Roethlisberger in this game. A little bit more athletic. Buffalo looked like they were the real deal. And I was impressed with the way they played. And Pittsburgh's got to see Buffalo in Week 14. That's going to be an interesting matchup. I want to talk about this game, although it really wasn't much of a game come the second half, but I wanted to talk about this game because I failed to mention this when I was talking about this game for Week 13, and that was Des Bryant. You had Dallas on a Tuesday night game because the game was pushed back because Baltimore played Pittsburgh last Thursday when it was supposed to have been the Dallas game, hosting the downtrodden Dallas Cowboys. I'm not talking about this game because Dallas did anything of any significance because as you, if you watch this game, you saw they've been doing what they've been doing all season long is look like some trash. I don't understand how Coach McCarthy could be so loyal to his defensive coordinator when their defense is getting obliterated by the run. They gave up 300 yards rushing against Baltimore on Tuesday night. This was the second time this season that they gave up 300 yards. The first time was against Cleveland. They had three players rush. No, I'm sorry. There was your quarterback who rushed for 90-something yards. There was a... Gus Edwards, who rushed for over 100 yards. There was the rookie J.K. Dobbins that rushed for 70-something yards. And then there was the the veteran Mark Ingram, who, if I'm not mistaken, rushed for like 70 or 80 yards. It's unthinkable the way this defense has been playing. And Mike Nolan still has a job. We saw Greg Williams get fired the next day because of a – I don't know what he was thinking about a – asinine call defensively to go all out blitz against Derek Carr and we'll talk about that game in a few minutes he got fired the next day why is Mike Nolan still a defensive coordinator in the NFL his defense is ranked 32nd they gave up 300 yards rushing to a team who has been dealing with COVID protocol issues who's who have had players that have not been out I mean who have had players that have been out and They had a player who was just coming back in Lamar Jackson from being on the COVID list. And speaking of the COVID list, I I just want to send a shout out to my man, although he's not a part of the Dallas Cowboys anymore, Dez Bryant. I felt so bad for Dez. I look so forward to watching Dez play against Dallas I wasn't, I'm not sitting here telling you that Dez was going to go out here and have a 100-yard receiving game and score two touchdowns. But just for the mere fact that I know once he signed with Baltimore and he saw this game on the schedule, I know he has had this game circled on his schedule when he signed with Baltimore. I know this was the game he had an asterisk by wanting to show the Cowboys, although he said there were no hard feelings, that he was still 88, and he could still throw the X up. So when they 
pulled Dez from the field 40 minutes before this game was supposed to start to say that he had tested positive for COVID, I felt his pain because I've always been a big Dez fan. When he was at OK State, when Dallas drafted him, when they moved up and made the trade to draft him, I was elated. So I have always been a Dez guy. And I know that he is a shell of the guy he was in Dallas, but he is still my guy. And so for Dez not to be able to play in this game, I was really disappointed for him. And I understand the NFL is trying to do their best to keep everybody safe. So, it, you know, if anybody thinks there was some conspiracy not to have him play, I, I think that you're off kilter with that. But it's just a shame that this test results weren't made earlier so that he um, would have known earlier that he wasn't going to be able to play as opposed to 40 minutes before the game was to kick off and then they had to pull him. So I just wanted to send a shout out to Dez. I hope that he's able to play, you know, this season, a couple of more games. If Baltimore is able to get in the playoffs, that he will have a effect in the game. And I thought this was going to be a prime game for Dez to participate in because Baltimore's leading wide receiver, Mark Andrews, their tight end, was going to be out because of COVID. And their second um, receiver, Willie Sneed, was going to be out. So they only really were going to have Hollywood Brown. Because um, I still think Dez, on the, on the, on, even on his bad days, better than Miles Boykin. I'm sorry, I do. And maybe I'm biased, but I've just never seen anything from Miles Boykin since he's been in the league to prove to me that he's a nothing but a... Uh, a third receiver. That's just me. Um, and apparently the Ravens do too, because if they didn't, they wouldn't be looking on the market. They wouldn't, wouldn't have been looking on the market to try to find and sign another receiver. I digress. But I just wanted to say, I just want to send out a shout out to Dez and say, hey, brother, um, I hope that you will continue to play this season. I know that he's on the list right now, but I hope that you don't quit this year, that you hang in there and maybe the Ravens will at some point before this season's out, we'll try to get you the ball and, and uh, make a play. And I want to see you be able to throw up the 88, throw up the X one more time, even if it's in a different uniform. So speaking of Greg Williams and the Jets, we're not going to stay on this game long, but like I said, Mike Nolan, he still has a job in Dallas. Mike McCarthy still has a job in Dallas. The Jets, they did they do the right thing? I don't know. I think Adam Gates should have been fired a long time ago. He shouldn't even been here coaching this year. But Greg Williams, we all know that Greg Williams is the type of guy that is a chance taker. We know that Greg Williams is the type of guy that believes in his system, believes that he is that guy as a coach. He's been successful in this league, but the last few years he has not been that great in, in with the Jets organization. But the Jets as a whole as an organization has not been great. But an all-out blitz against a veteran quarterback like a Derek Carr, who has been to the Pro Bowl, you got man-to-man coverage with one of the fastest young receivers in the league in Henry Ruggs, no safety over the top. That, to me, was just an arrogant decision, and that would be a decision to me that would have been made by a first-year defensive coordinator, not a veteran of the stature of a Greg Williams. So I can understand why the Jets pulled the move they made 
it was no reason. It was 13 seconds to go in the game. They had to have a touchdown. As long as you don't let anybody get behind you, you win this game. How do you lose this game is just, I'm still shaking my head because it, it just was unbelievable. That's why the Jets haven't won a game this year because of situations like that. Then you had New Orleans against Atlanta. Taysom Hill actually looked better this week. I took Atlanta this week because I thought that the way Atlanta played against the Raiders last week, that Atlanta may come in and be able to get their offense rolling and get an upset. When their offense had opportunities, they just couldn't cash in. And Taysom Hill actually threw the ball very well in this game. So hats off to New Orleans. Detroit down 11 points going into the fourth quarter against the Chicago Bears. Mitchell Trubisky, folks, that ship has sailed. You're up in this game, not much time left, under two minutes, and you fumble the ball in your own territory at the nine-yard line, if I'm not mistaken. This is why Mitchell Trubisky needs to be relocated in a change of scenery. This is why their general manager needs to be fired. This is why Matt Nagy may lose his job because Mitchell Trubisky is not a starting quarterback in the NFL. He is a backup. And you moved up one spot from the third pick to the second pick to get Mitchell Trubisky as if somebody was going to jump in front of you and draft him. And you see what happened. Detroit, in their first game without Matt Patricia, who has now been fired, looked like a different team in the second half. Um, Folks, this is what I'm saying about the NFL. It it, It just cannot be this easy. It just can't be. Let's move on to the game that really had my eyes wide open, and that was the Cleveland Browns and the Tennessee Titans. Every time you think that you found out something new about Tennessee, or every time you think that Tennessee is ready to take that next step, you see a glaring hole in their game. Tennessee at home, you would think that they, as physical as they were the week before against Indianapolis, you would think that they would be this way against Cleveland. You let Baker Mayfield put up 35 points on you in the first half. Baker Mayfield. I take I, I give Baker Mayfield what credit's due. He threw the ball well in this game, but the run set up the pass. Their running game was outstanding, and then Baker was able to go play action. But a couple of the touchdowns that they got early in this game, there was nobody around defensively. There was no corner help at all from the secondary for Tennessee. I don't know what's going on, but I like Mike Brable. I like Tennessee. I just don't understand the inconsistency. One week, they look like they're that team, and then the next week, you're just like, you can't figure them out. I will say this. They've lost to both Ohio teams this year, Cincinnati and Cleveland, whatever that's worth. Tennessee, you got to get better. Speaking of Cincinnati, Cincinnati and Miami, it's not much to talk about in this game. The Dolphins did what they were supposed to do. They struggled early on. But Tua was able to get them in the end zone. He had a little fight, that skirmish that broke out. But Miami was able to get the win. Jacksonville on the road against Minnesota. Minnesota started out a little sloppy. 
Jacksonville. Uh, Mike Glennon played well in this game, played well enough that they had a chance to win this game, but turnovers would get you every time. And Kirk Cousins, folks, I'm going to give Kirk a salute. He has played well the last three to four weeks. He's not the reason why, per se, that Minnesota has been struggling in these games. He actually has been the reason why they've been able to win because he has been able to stay on course even when they've had some turnovers. Kirk Cousins has brought them back, and he did in this game against Jacksonville. The kicking game, again, these guys get paid to kick. Zero line for Dallas, missed three field goals, but he's supposed to be grade the leg. Again, he needs to be fired. The kicker for Minnesota, Dan Bailey missed a potential game-winning kick in regulation. He was able to redeem himself in the overtime by the skin of his chin. He got the game-winning kick. Indianapolis and Houston, the Colts bounced back against their rival in the AFC South, the Houston Texans. Houston had a chance to win this game. Closing seconds of this game, a bad fumble exchange between the center and your quarterback caused Deshaun Watson and the Texans an opportunity to unseat the Colts. The Rams in Arizona, Tyler Murray did not look like himself in this game. The Rams defense bouncing back after getting embarrassed by San Francisco, getting punched in the mouth. They came to play this game defensively and they were able to get a big win. Philadelphia and Green Bay. Let's talk about this game real quick. Philadelphia finally has decided that it's time to see what they have in quarterback Jalen Hurt. The rookie from Oklahoma will start in week 14 against the New Orleans Saints. Jalen Hurt came in this game, threw a touchdown pass. He didn't set the world on fire, but you can see that he did elevate his teammates as they played inspired once he came in, too little, too late. Aaron Rodgers is that guy. We're going to see what happens going forward with Philadelphia. Carson Wentz is just too expensive to be on the bench next year. I don't know if they could possibly move him in that contract. That's going to be something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. I just want to see how Jalen Hurts plays these next four weeks to see if there's going to be an offseason where we're talking about a quarterback controversy and Philadelphia potentially trying to see if they can move off of that contract. I think personally that they need to take a look at Doug Peterson as well because just as much as I've said before that you want to point the finger at Carson Wentz, Doug Peterson is the head coach. He's also an offensive coach. He should be partly responsible for the development of his quarterback. He does have he does also have to take a finger of blame in this case as well as Carson Wentz does. We'll see what happens with that situation. The game that had me scratching my head and shaking my head and wondering why this man still has a job is the L.A. Chargers hosting the New England Patriots. Why is Anthony Lynn still employed? I'm not... I'm not stating that people need to be fired. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're not producing and you're getting paid the way these coaches get paid in the NFL and your teams are not prepared from week to week, 
you have to be fired. And I don't know if they're waiting for the end of the season to fire Anthony Lynn, but the performance that they put on in week 13 against the New England Patriots was atrocious. 45 to nothing to a team that basically has averaged 17 points a game in the New England Patriots. They got two special teams turnovers that turn into touchdowns, a blocked field goal before the half, before the half, everybody, that turned into a touchdown for the Patriots. And then a kick return, I mean, uh, a punt return. Not a kick return because they never scored. Remember that. So it was a punt return. But they put up 45 points. Again, two weeks in a row, Cam Newton does not throw for 100 yards. Two weeks in a row, they don't ground game for more than 100 yards. But they put up 45 points. Anthony Lynn should have been fired after this game. The Chargers should have said, you know what? We're going to just accept the intern coach and roll. We only have four weeks left, and then we'll start looking and doing a coaching search in the offseason. We'll start our coaching search now. But Anthony Lynn should not be at the helm. If this was not a straight indictment that these players have quit, I don't know what else is. We had not seen Justin Herbert look this bad since he's been starting for the Chargers. Some of the throws he made, they always talk about Bill Belichick confusing young quarterbacks and and his record against young quarterbacks is pretty much he's pretty much unbeatable. But if you watched any highlights of this game and saw some of the throws that Justin Herbert was making, you're asking yourself what he was looking at because clearly clearly the players he threw the ball to and the interceptions that he had the receivers weren't there he was clearly throwing to new england now there were a couple where one bounced up in the air that's not on the quarterback but there were a couple where he threw the ball against his body we know he's got a strong arm but the receiver was not even there it was not even there so i don't understand why you're throwing that pass so it just it was mind-boggling to me to see how bad the Chargers looked in this game. It was almost like they traveled instead of being at home. It's like they got on the plane and traveled to New England instead of New England traveling to them. It just made no sense. It was terrible. Terrible football. Terrible football. And you're trying to convince me that New England, even with Bill Belichick being as great as he is, is 45 points better than the Chargers with that talent that New England has, which is basically none. Is 45 points better than the Chargers. I understand that there is a a uh, a, dif- a a difference in coaching. That there is a a big advantage between Bill Belichick and Anthony Lynn, but 45 points and you don't score a point. Come on now, that's 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 come on NFL. That this is what I'm talking about. And then we're going to end Week 13's review talking about the Denver Broncos going against Kansas City. Here was another one. I know it's a rival game. It's a division game. Denver this week actually had a quarterback. Drew Locke was back in place. Melvin Gordon ran the ball well for the Broncos. But you had a back and forth game with Kansas City and Denver. Patrick Mahomes was doing pretty much whatever he wanted to do. Travis Kelsey, folks, is the guy. We talked about Mr. Kittles in San Francisco, Travis Kelsey, he's the best tight end in the league. I know uh, Mr. Wallace for the Raiders is a a guy that we're going to be talking about 
for some years to come as well. But right now, Travis Kelsey is the bar. And Travis Kelsey, let's salute you with um, five straight 1,000-yard seasons for a tight end. Remarkable. That sounds like Tony Gonzalez, Antonio Gates type of numbers. On this pace right here, Travis Kelsey is looking at getting a gold jacket if he continues this way. And as long as Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid are in place, I think Travis Kelsey is going to be just fine. But again, folks, this game should not have been this close. Kansas City should have blown him out. But this is what I'm talking about when I talk about when you want to talk about the parity in the league and it's a and the NFL is a week to week game. I'm telling you, I don't know how they do it, but Vegas, man, you guys have a way of making things happen. That's all I'm going to say and leave it at that. I like in the Thursday night game tonight, I like the Rams. I know it's playoff implications for both teams. The Rams need to win um, to keep ahead of Seattle and New England. Of course, they're fighting for a playoff spot uh, with the Ravens and the Raiders. Um, So, you know, that they need to win this game as well. I don't know how they score points. The Rams are at home. They should be okay to be able to get points on the board. Aaron Donald should have a good game in this game. These two teams have not met since New England was able to pull off um, the Super Bowl victory, Tom Brady's last one. I like the Rams tonight. Jared Goff's going to have to be smart with the ball, protect the football, don't give away, don't turn the ball over. And the Rams should be fine to win this game and start us off in week number 14. Folks, I I know I, I vent talking about the NFL. I love the NFL. I just don't love what it's giving me right now because you're trying to convince me that it's just this easy from week to week to change how good or bad a team can be. I'm just not buying that stock. And I keep saying that. I'm just not buying that stock. I'm selling that stock. But I do love the NFL. But I just don't love what it's doing right now. As we always talk about here, it's all about entertainment. We know that. But just when you want to give me entertainment, just make it more convincing of the the games that you're showing me in regards to the opponents and the the matchups. If I have two teams that are on the same page, I get it. But when you have so much disparity with the two teams, like I said, Cleveland jumping out on top of Tennessee early in this game, 35 to 7. Really? Seattle being held to 12 points by the Giants. Really? Yeah, folks, that's what I'm talking about. As they say, the NFL is the mother of all sports. And this is why, because it keeps us entertained, good and bad, it keeps us entertained. So with that, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to Uptempo Sports 24-7. We appreciate you tuning in. Um, you know that we'll be here for either Friday, our picks for on Friday for the weekend, or we'll give you another Saturday weekend edition of Uptempo Sports 
Either way, you will get our week 14 picks and we'll also update you on all that's going on in sports. One more um, thing I want to mention before we um, get off these airwaves is that um, Ohio State, the Big Ten changed their uh, requirements. They no longer are required to win six games in order to get to the Big Ten championship because of all the games that have had to be postponed due to COVID. Ohio State is definitely the best team in the Big Ten. We all know that. So now they will, in two weeks, play in the Big Ten championship game against Northwestern. They had already beaten Indiana. We know Wisconsin's lost two games, So and Northwestern's only lost one. And so that will be the Big Ten championship, Northwestern against Ohio State, and that's how it should be. And just as, just, as, just as much as Notre Dame and Clemson in the ACC for the championship is how it should be, that's what we're coming down to as we come to the home stretch of college football. So with that, we just want to say thanks again for tuning in. And as we always say before we part ways, it's always same bat time, same bat channel. Until the next, take care. Peace.